1: Hi, welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host Nate Ryan, coming to you today from the NBC Sports Charlotte studios here on the Tuesday after the Michigan race, joined by via video conference, joined by Steve Letart, NASCAR and NBC analyst. Stevie, I appreciate you coming on. I know it was a hectic weekend in Michigan.
0: Uh, it was a hectic weekend. You know, I'll be honest. Listen, uh, we get paid to cover racing, so I don't mind staying to Monday, and I don't. Have much empathy for the competitors because it's their jobs. But I feel bad for the for the stands. On Sunday, uh, a friend of mine at NASCAR, I said, "Man, the stands look huge. What's the deal?" And he said, "This is the biggest crowd we've had at Michigan since 2015, so nearly a decade." And in the end, that was probably the saddest part. Is the place was electric. The stands were full. The infield was full. They did get to see 75 laps of racing, but but what turned out to be probably one of the best races. Not one of the best because we've had so many, but a great race, right? I'm not going to try to rank them, but a great race at Michigan. Uh, So I feel bad for the stands. I won't lie. Driving to the track yesterday morning down 12, you've done the drive from Ann Arbor. we passed motorhome after motorhome, and I got sadder and sadder and sadder because I saw all these race fans who have spent their money to come cheer on their stars, and they had to go home early.
1: As full as those grandstands look, the campgrounds, as always, Michigan, one of the most underrated campgrounds in NASCAR, I think after Talladega, throw a few others out there, but Michigan always packed, was packed this weekend. Like you said, it took two days, unfortunately, to finish 200 laps. They got to see 75 laps on Sunday, saw the final 125 laps on Monday, race won by Chris Buescher over Martin Truex Jr. I want to get to that strategy play, Stevie, but let's start with. He mentioned it, the truly amazing racing. I mean, I don't know what it is about the next-gen car, but it seems like it's optimized for the bigger one-and-a-half-mile, two-mile speedways. This race had 16 leaders. That's the most ever in 106 cup races at Michigan. Why do you think the racing was so good?
0: You know, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to say exactly what ingredient makes the soup so good currently. I will say that I think it is a mixture of things the similar parts allows more teams to be more competitive you know the depth of field i would add the business model in that i think the charter service has eliminated a lot of the back cars that were kind of just collecting a paycheck you know when we watch the race now it's not like five cars go a lap down in 20 laps like they're all together so the depth of the field is there so that kind of usually adds to better racing and then the car design itself it likes high-speed racing Right, it, ha- it has a very clean, linear airflow. It makes a lot of downforce underneath the car, and while there's a ton of dirty air right between the car, right behind the car, it's only right behind the car. You know, if you could step out just a foot or two or three feet, you can find more downforce. And listen, does the leader have an advantage? Are we going to talk about why Martin Truex Jr. couldn't pass Chris Busher? Yes, but if you think the leader's not going to have an advantage, you should be at Princeton or something working on physics, because I don't know how the leader's not going to have an advantage. Right, he should have an advantage. But I think the car in second, third, and fourth have options now. And that's what makes the racing so good. And I'm going to tip my hat to the to the drivers. I don't think they mean to. I don't think it's purposeful. But they are all in all the time. You know, we can say all we want. But there was a time that the drivers were going to, quote, boycott and ride single file because they didn't like what they saw in all this conversation. And now, whether they like it or don't like it, they're all in every lap, every restart, every move against their teammates, against their friends. And I don't think that should be overlooked. I think we've asked the drivers to do a lot. I think this is this is a tall task, and they've stepped up to it.
1: I can remember a Talladega race where we saw a single-file processional for about 50 laps because drivers just didn't really want to race four-wide for three and a half hours, which is understandable. but. We're seeing more of that now. You're right, that mad scramble, especially after restarts. But it feels to me like it's another example of how stage racing has changed the game a little bit, right? Like every lap theoretically really does matter.
0: So it's, it's funny because I think I'm in the minority. I know a lot of people are thankful we got rid of stages at the road courses. I'm not sure I'm a fan of that yet. Uh, but I'm also a deliver what everybody kind of wants to see. But I will tell you in a 400-mile oval stages are very necessary. Now there are times that the caution comes at the wrong time and it makes the stage kind of like a one-two punch, right? When you ride around for nine minutes under yellow, run three laps and then have a stage end, I'm just like the fan. I'm like, oh man, I wish we could like eliminate the stage end. I wish we could move them, but you can't kind of have your cake and eat it too, right? You got to kind of take it one way or the other. So I'm willing to take those black eyes when they do happen. Listen, I want the fans to understand, I'm with you. When we have a caution nine laps before a stage end and then a restart with two to go, I'm like, man, this is breaking up the flow of the race. I mean, Pocono's second stage, I didn't think we were ever going to get it started. It was like impossible. We couldn't get through turn one for 45 minutes. That does break up the flow of the race, but the strategy part of it allows different teams to do different things. And I think the opportunity for change is great. And what we have currently, I think, is a magical schedule, right? If you like toe-to-toe heavyweight fights, go to Darlington. Every time the caution comes out, you got to put four tires on the fastest cars are going to win. If you want a strategic battle, go to Pocono, Michigan. You're going to have this high-speed situation, right? If you want pushing and shoving, I would love to tell you to go to Martinsville. The racing needs to be better there. Everybody knows it, but it still exists, and they're going to beat and bang and push and shove. We kind of have a little bit of everything, and I I think that's really a a good point for NASCAR.
1: And I think you're right. The way the cautions fell at Michigan really enhanced the importance of strategy. I mean, it was great racing, I thought, especially on restarts, but – that it unfolded the way it did with Truex versus Busher, Scott Graves, crew chief for Busher, versus James Small, crew chief for Martin Truex Jr. I'm so glad I have you on here, Stevie, to talk about this because who better than you, former Daytona 500 winning crew chief, to analyze this. I've got some notes here because i want to make sure I get this right. So Truex, he didn't lead the most laps, but he certainly appeared to have the fastest car. He won the first two stages. I think the most stunning moment of the race was when he pitted with 17 to go in stage two and went from, I think, outside the top 15 all the way to the first in the final 15 laps of that stage. But then he makes this interesting move. He really only had to make one more pit stop from there, but he elected to pit to start the final stage on lap 120 when Chris Busher, Tyler Reddick, Ryan Blaney, Kevin Harvick all stayed out. Truex could have stayed out there. Why didn't he stay out, and was that the right call? Do you feel like that's where the race kind of turned?
0: All right, so let's go into strategy two oh two next gen style. Four tires figured nine and a half or ten seconds. That's fifteen ish gallons of fuel. The car holds twenty. So if you need a full tank of fuel, you are absolutely slowing down your pit stop. That's very important for the for the fans to know. It didn't exist in the old car. With five lug nuts, it took about the same amount of time to put gas in as it did put tires on. So that wasn't really a layer. So minimal pin stops was out, without a doubt, was the winning strategy every single time. Unless you go back a few years ago at Pocono. That's kind of the only place you would have been able to do it is like a gas and go after a restart. So now in today's world, anytime you need over 15 gallons, you have the chance to be passed and passed dramatically on pit road. So the entire field pits at lap 104. That puts everybody into a, well, the entire field does not but the cars that are going to race for the win because some guys are trying to stay out for the stage, and that was right for them. Suarez was one of them. I thought he was going to win the stage. But the race winners all pit at 104. They run to the end of the stage. Pit road opens, lap 123. You have to decide at this point, are you going to pit one more time? Everyone's going to pit one more time at least. But when you come down pit road, do you want to have a 14-second pit stop and need all the fuel you have to take? Or do you want to top off gas right now and have a 9-second pit stop? with about 40 to go. That's the decision. That's the fork in the road. And as crazy as this sounds, I think both crew chiefs chose right. I think for Chris Buescher, we had yet to see clean air on the 17th. Scott Graves probably at some point said, you know what? We have to get up here. We have to make something happen. I'm going to stay out. The 45 tire Loretic does the same thing. says, I'm going to stay out. I'm going to get some track position. I'm going to worry about being behind on fuel because everybody talks about track position. But you can't have everything. You can't have track position and the best tires and the most fuel. Something has to be compromised. What the seventeen, the forty-five did is they said, well, tires don't matter. So I'll compromise with less fuel. Kevin Harvick did it. Ryan Blaney did it. I like that call. I also love James Small's decision. He just drove from 18th to the 14th or something to the lead in like 10 laps. It was, it was one of the most amazing drives I've seen. The car is unbelievable. So if I'm James Small, I tell myself, I am not going to get beat on pit road. I am not going to have a caution right at the fuel window, come down here, have a 14 second pit stop, and come off pit road in 17th. I'm not going to get leapfrogged on the green flag pit stops like Larson did to them at Pocono just a few weeks ago. Like, that's not how we're going to lose this race. So I loved his call to come get two tires and gas. What no one is talking about is the drive that the 17 and the 45 put on. It was a clinic. So you restart the race. Now we run the final stage green. We get out there running and the 19's coming like we expect him to leapfrog into traffic. He's making time, making time, making time. He breaks through in third, four seconds behind the leaders. He is going to have a four second faster pit stop. So if he could just find a second on the racetrack, with, remind everyone the fastest race car, he pits, puts four tires on. He leapfrogs in green flag pit stop, game over. Chris Buescher and Tyler Reddick. I haven't asked them, but I believe they purposely worked together, hmm. running first and second. They would draft down the straightaways. They would offset one car width in the corner, run both corners, never try to pass one another, pull back in in the draft, and stretched the lead over the 19 to six seconds. So like when we talk about the nuance, right? Everybody's going to talk about cars and how they drove. It was that moment. It was a 15 laps before the green flag pit stops that Tyler Reddick, and Chris Busher, a Ford and a Toyota, I guarantee there was no, like, there was no communication between the two teams that this is the plan, right? This is Billy Scott and Scott Graves going, Scott Graves tells his guy, hey, Chris, we need to gap the 19. And Billy Scott tells his guy, hey, we need to gap the 19. And two race car drivers go, well, we know how to do it. We're professionals at 200 miles an hour. We are racing with scalpels. We are not racing with sledgehammers. And, and we are going to put this amazing 15-lap drive in. Gap the 19, come down. The 45 has a pit stop faster than the 17, passes the 17, and go back on the racetrack. And and the 19, then after pit road, blends. Like the big miss in all this is the poor 45. I think had race-winning opportunity, and I'm gonna sorry. I I I look past pit road mistakes. You know, in nine or ten seconds, it's very hard. But when you know you're waiting on fuel, it is inexcusable to have a tire change issue. Inexcusable. It's bad coaching, bad planning, bad communication, bad something. Either he didn't know or he wasn't coached to know, but it's inexcusable for your jackman and you two tire changes to know that you're, listen, guys, you can do this in nine seconds. I only need you to do it in 14. That's 50% slower. That's like, hey, we're going to go run a race and you take off sprinting where only, you only have to run the mile in under 20 minutes. I'm just going to mosey my way down. And, and, you know, like understand the situation, a total miss by the 45 team because they had track position on the 17. So I know it was a long-winded answer, but my point is, I think they were both right. Like, I, I would have – it's so easy to Monday morning it. I'm not going to do that for James Small here. I'm not going to get beat on fuel quantity with the fastest race car in Michigan. Ain't happening. I'm doing yeah. the same thing James Small did, and I'm probably finishing second as well.
1: Because James Small had the fastest car and said, look, I don't want to take any chance on potentially running out of fuel. And by pitting at that point, he does. Whereas Scott Graves, I think it was interesting, Stevie, he said that on strategy – Ours was based on when we had to pit.
2: Uh, we stayed out at the start of the third stage, um, so obviously we weren't we weren't as in the same fuel situation they were. I think the 19 came in um, and had topped off um, at the third stage, so we pit based on basically where we had to. We we went ran it as far as we could. We maybe had another couple laps in it because I don't I don't think you ran to, to all the way to the end of the fuel, but uh, we basically knew ran to the point where we were in the window um, where we could make it to the end um and just this kind of race with minimal lap time fall off you know that was that was the play we had did that make sense i guess from the 17 perspective
1: because scott graves knew he didn't have the fastest car so it was a different scenario and they've got to win
0: so and they made their car better yeah not only did but but here's the things we'll never know so if the 45 doesn't have his wheel issue does the 45 and the 17 continue to play nice i don't think so so now they're going to be in each other's dirty air, trading the lead side by side. They're definitely not going to run clean laps. Does that mean the 19 runs them down quicker? Like there's so many, it was a perfect storm for the 19 to go wrong and for the 17 to go right. You know, like, because remember the 17 lost the lead to the 45. So if the 45 left retire, or excuse me, right retire is tight, I think he's better than the 45. So does that mean he gets stuck behind him and they slow each other down and here comes the 19? Like... We, we'll never know. It doesn't matter. Chris Buescher won it with an amazing drive. But, you know, sometimes I want to tell you where the mistakes were made. And I actually think the 45, the 17, and the 19, the 11, I think the top four or five cars in this race all called the right race. Sometimes with the information you have presented, I would have made all the same decisions.
1: The final stop for Reddick and Buescher comes three laps before Truex. And I guess, did they kind of pull Truex in at that point? I mean, was
0: that probably yeah, a little, so little... I was a little surprised Truex didn't run a little longer because I thought he could run longer. Yes. You know, if you're James Small, though, you wait. So it's like playing poker. And you have more gas. So I'm going to wait until you flip over a card. You're going to show me a little bit of your hand. So once the 45 and 17 pit, I think James knows instantly I'm going to leave pit road behind them. They were not on pit road long enough. They were efficient enough for me to delta behind them. So if I have to go get them, I'm going to go ahead and get out of the way right now and put tires on and give my driver the longest time possible on the freshest tires to go get them. I have the fastest race car. So once again, look, I love the Patriots. They beat the Seahawks because the coach of the Seahawks tried to make it about coaching he didn't just hand the ball to marshawn lynch and say hey man you got three downs give us a touchdown pick at the one what james small did is what should be done some days it's not about you some days it's not about the crew chief martin tracks jr is a champion he's a superstar you have the best race car he has sliced the field to pieces all day long you keep it full of fuel and as soon as the guys you have to beat pit you come in you know what you need you put four tires on it and then you. Give the ball and you hand it to your champ and you say, There it is, buddy, go get him. And there is nothing until that final run. There was nothing I saw that didn't think the 19 was not going to run the 17 right back down and go by.
1: And he did run him down with 23 laps to go. It was around the time that Truex caught Busher, couldn't get around him with 12 to go. He had that wiggle. I was trying to get underneath him, lost a second, but only took him eight laps to get right back within three tenths of Busher. And that's kind of where he kind of stalled out for the final six laps of the race but if a caution comes out at any point it's probably Truex's to win at that point right it
0: is and at some point though I feel like we talk too much about what couldn't happen in a race like why aren't we saying Chris Buescher held Martin Truex Jr. off why do we say Truex couldn't pass Chris Buescher and I say that because what Chris Buescher did was quite miraculous there was two or three moments where he caught lap cars at the wrong time and he didn't Overdrive the corner, didn't step out. Like this is a momentum track. If you bobble, it's over. X is there. So I just think that this was this was one. This is one of those trophies that we're going to talk a lot about strategy and this and this and this. But the simple fact is the 17 kind of ran the perfect race for them. And Chris Buescher, I saw something on social media. He must have had something at the Ford Museum and he carried the trophy in. And he should have carried it in because he earned it. These guys aren't robots. Like we, we want to take the skill set away from these drivers somehow. Somehow we want to make it all about mechanics and physics and stuff. And that's what I love. So it's funny that I'm the guy arguing the other side of this. But if Kyle Busch going to RSDR doesn't prove that they're all not the same driver, then what are we watching? They're all great. Do I think this is the field of the best drivers in the world in a stock car? Zero doubt in my mind. But what Chris Busher did is not easy. Jalen Jr. and I have this conversation a lot because Junior Motorsports has had a lot of speed, but they definitely haven't won as many races as I think they've been in position to win. And, And this isn't a knock on any of his drivers, right? But that's Saturday, right? When you get to Sunday, these drivers are so good at closing out races. We take it for granted. They're so good. They look robotic. Like what Chris Buescher did, he made it look easy. It was anything but easy. So it was just a like it was a great bet. This race had it all for me. It really did. And then I want to be the guy to say, I'm thankful there wasn't a caution. I wanted it to play out. I would have been frustrated if we would have had a caution and no offense to Kevin Harvick or Brad Keselowski. I'm trying to think of the guys right there in the middle of the top 10, right? One of those guys winning on a four wide move on the restart. Why they still would have earned it and they would have had a trophy and I would be giving them praise today. I like some of these running like they just running out. I like, I like, I'm running to the finish.
1: Yeah, there was definitely a purity about this race and the way it concluded. It starts with Chris Buescher, I think, to some extent. Like you said, sublime drive. Now back-to-back wins in the Cup Series. One at Richmond last week. Wins at Michigan this week. I think a lot of people look at last year, Stevie, and see that Bristol win is kind of like the Chris Buescher breakout a little bit. But I mean, he's certainly turned a lot of heads this year with his performance. Not just richmond michigan but the road courses i mean he could win the next two races did this catch you off guard did you always know chris busher could be this kind of driver because he wins the Xfinity championship in 2015 and then since then i mean he had the win at front row that was a rain shortened race but it didn't feel to me like chris busher was going to be a breakout star the way he has been this year
0: so we talk a lot about organizations and the people within organizations we talk a lot about ross chastain and how he balances how aggressive to drive And in those conversations, I continue to talk about what it's like to have a franchise driver or a manager in the company that was a franchise driver, AKA Jeff Gordon. We see this a lot in Open Wheel. We see Dario hanging out with the Ganassi guys. We see Rick Mears hanging out with the Penske guys. I'm shocked that Elio didn't stay at Penske as like that driver mentor and not drive. And I know I'm not answering your question direct, but my point is no. Did I see this in Chris Buescher? I didn't have an opinion either way. From the pit box, without dealing with them single-handedly, adjustment, go drive it, feedback, like that intimately, it's very hard for me to judge talent. But if you go back to Brad Kozlowski, there hasn't been one quote, one moment, one sentence where he isn't saying that Chris Buescher's the man. And I think I know I took it as, oh, well, Brad, you know, he's team building, trying to get everybody good. Now I wonder, was it team building? Or was Brad basically poking everybody in the chest and be like, you just wait. That guy is way better than you think. You just wait. listen, I was there when Jeff Borden came in and said, we're hiring Jimmy Johnson. We were like, oh boy, we better damn build a lot of cars. This guy hits everything. He can't win on Saturdays. He can't win in an Xfinity. Why would we want Jimmy Johnson at Hendrick Motorsports? Well, you know, seven championships. It sounds like Jeff Borden's a pretty good judge of talent. And and I say that tongue in cheek, but you get my point. Like, when we're up in the booth, I see 85% of what Burton and Dale Jr. see, but there's a 15% that they see that I'll never. And it's because they lived their lives out there on the racetrack and and i think that's where brad should be they have a great situation here because there's never been a crossword between them chris seems like he's at home brad has said he's loved him forever and brad has done something that i think is impossible for drivers to do and he's remained patient and built that place the way he wants to build it from the day he went over there and pressure washed it and painted it to what it is now uh, he should be given a tremendous amount of credit right he sees things differently he definitely goes to the beat of his own drum you know brad's one of those guys I, I'm, I'm not afraid to say it publicly he's one of those guys that i reach out to periodically to say hey how would you think of the broadcast did i have everything you're thinking on strategy or this or that or you know i don't ask everybody in the garage but he's a he just sees the rubik's cube very differently so i work for the fans but brad usually gives you a very honest intellectual answer on man i thought you had it pretty good or i liked the segment or I didn't like the segment and not that that sways our broadcast but but I, I value his opinion i always have you gotta remember i started with him at hendrick right like he was that young kid at hms when he got that win in the uh the 09 finch car at at uh, talladega right so it, it's an interesting group it's quite it's quite fascinating i'm so happy for jack a hall of famer he's been around forever no denying that he's up there on age he definitely doesn't have the, the energy of the cat in the hat from 20 years ago standing on pit road. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that. So I love to see that Jack, um, you know, I'm glad that it's still RFK, right? That R is very important for NASCAR, always has been. And I'm thankful that that he's going, he's around to see this resurgence.
1: Yeah, Jack Crouch now 81 years old, but is a NASCAR Hall of Famer. And like you said, he's a the foundational part of this team. That's why he remains very much a part of the team in name and in presence as well as so I think he was in Michigan. But yeah, Brad Keselowski deserves a ton of credit for what's happened here. And Scott Graves talked about that after Chris Busher's victory. He said that Keselowski, not only is he ensured that there's been a lot of reinvestment in the team, that they're spending more money, they're spending it in the right areas, but Uh, Scott Graves talks, Stevie, about
2: aesthetically, like what Brad has done. I think with Brad, I mean, there's expectations, but then he has been very adamant and supportive about actually giving us the tools. He's really pressed for getting the investments. Like, we got a new hauler this year. We got a new pit box. And those might not seem like big things on the outside, but they make coming to the racetrack easier. They make being in the race. Like, just having all the right information in front of you, having the, the right equipment makes things better. You look at the shop. Everything is looks new. You know, a few years ago, it wasn't something you you wouldn't want to take a lot of pictures of and, and put them out there. But you look at it now, and everything's bright, uh, everything's clean, and that that starts at that level. But then it works down into everything you do and, and the expectations that, that everyone has.
1: There's a fresh sheen, a fresh coat that's been applied to a shop that's been around a long time and had a lot of success in the past, and now is rediscovering that success. I laughed at my friend Bob Pokras last week because he asked Brad Kiszlaski after Richmond.
2: Bob Pachras, Fox Sports. Brad, uh, do you feel like you're the best forward team right now?
1: And now a week later, I'm wondering if Bob wasn't on to something. Because right now, if you look at back-to-back wins, Richmond, Michigan, Bush or Keselowski, both in the top five at Michigan, they were definitely ahead of Penske and Stuart
0: Haas at Michigan. Well, you heard Brad's answer, right? I don't know if I would try to quantify that. I mean, uh, you know, we're in a good spot. Um, I don't know if there's a... uh, how you would measure that like what's how do you quantify what's best and what's not i mean if you're going by wins i mean yeah we, we've got a, a a win and we're locked in the playoffs and, and that feels good right um you know and i think we're on a, a, a good streak and if you go by points i think that the 12 and the, the 22 are maybe in front of uh, us in points but uh fours we're all really close so i think the 12 22 17 the four i mean we're all very close in points so Uh, You know, I I don't know how you you, you quantify who's best and who's not. That was a team owner answer. That wasn't a driver answer. He said, well, we're just going to let our results speak for themselves. That's a man who knows the results. That's a man who says, well, look who has won the most Ford races this year. Right? Like, yeah, so Penske's won one with the 22 and one with the 12, so they have a couple. We've now won two. We only have two cars. They have three, four with maybe the 21. Like, that was a very calculated boardroom answer, which was, You're not gonna put me on record to say that I'm saying it's the best. I don't have to because I'm gonna give you a very tongue in cheek answer by looking at the facts and the facts will tell you that we're leading the way. And you talk about the new look of the shop. I had a very candid conversation with someone four or five years ago after an event at Roush and you're gonna laugh, but I'll never forget. We went into this area and it was nice. It was kind of all polished up. It was their museum area and, and we had this break. And we stepped off that area and and we went into like the little restroom area and it looked like you were at a truck stop off I-95 and it blew my mind. I, I've been to Team Penske. I've been to Joe Gibbs. I've been to Hendrick Motorsports. I mean, you can eat off the floors in the showroom. Does that make them faster? No, but that's a brick in the wall of culture. Like if the floor can't be shiny, how do you even think the detail on the race car is going to matter? The floor is easy. All you have to do is mop it and paint it. So if you can't get the simple stuff right, how can you ever get the hard stuff right? And it's no shock that Brad has worked for Mr. Hendrick and worked for Mr. Penske. And he's doing it his own way. Like, I'm not trying to give this rebuildance to, to Roger or to Rick, as, as genius as they are. What Brad has done is he has put Brad's spin on what he's learned from all those titans of industry. And and it, And I agree totally that it starts with, it starts with the damn sign in the lawn and people laugh. But when you pull in and the streetlights work and the parking lot's painted and the lawn's trimmed and the sign is up, that trickles all the way into, you know, I want this oil line routed differently. Nope. I want every tie wrap going the same direction. Not because the tire wraps make you faster, because that's the expectation of our performance. That's the level we are. Like when we look at Formula One, we get glassy eyed by the pomp and circumstance of it all. But there's a reason They are that polished, right? Because that's the detail they take on everything. And that's what Brad's doing. I mean, listen, it's even to the uniforms at the racetrack. The crews look great. The whole organization looks the part. Now, look, someone said, does this make him the favorite? Okay, now just hold on. (laughs) You know what this does? This more, I don't want to use the word belong because everyone earns their way into the playoffs. But this makes the bracket we're going to fill out in three weeks much more difficult. That's really the point. The point is right now, when i look there i can make a case for almost all of them to get mm. through the first round mm. um now i believe you could get too far out and momentum's a real thing and we'll see who shows up at the right time but in three weeks we're not going to learn any more than we know at michigan because we're going go to go two road courses in daytona so throw all that away there's going to be no test of speed of a standard style racetrack so when we unload in darlington what are you going to do maybe you're going to look back and say well who's good at darlington in the spring or well well who's good at michigan well who's good at Pocono? like It's going to be very hard to handicap this playoff field. And the fans should buy tickets and come out because that's what makes it great.
1: Let's revisit a couple of things from the race. The first, certainly the number 45 pit stop. Tyler Reddick, like you said, actually had come out ahead of Chris Buescher. It could have been his race to win. uh, And instead, another pit problem. This is not the first one, unfortunately, for the number 45 or 2311 racing across the board. How do they fix it, Stevie? I mean, do they need to just make personnel changes? Do they need to have sort of a, I mean, this is a systemic problem. Like you said, like, do they need to just make sure that the message gets sent? This stop's going to take 14 seconds. You need to change tires in four. You can take the extra seconds. Does it just need to be sort of a mentality change more than a personnel change?
0: This isn't a week or a month fix. You know, fixing it for next week's a waste of time. You need to find out what happened here. And and you need to coach to the specific situation to try to remedy that issue. But that's not the fix for 2311. Uh, When you drive down 77, they have this brand new building going up. It's beautiful. It's got the angled windows and all the Michael Jordan touches and the Denny Hamlin touch. You know, Denny's been very critical about his own pit crew at times. He's been critical about Joe Gibbs' pit department at times. From what I understand, 2311 is moving away from Joe Gibbs Racing at some point in the pit department. That would be a higher priority. If I'm Dave Rogers and Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan's group, and I look at where I'm spending my money heading into next year, Look, they got the drivers they got the partners they got the speed they got toyota toyota loves them they love toyota if i was president of 2311 i would sit down with my legal pad today and i would want to know how we're going to control our own pit crews in 2024 top to bottom inside and out now that doesn't fix instantly what happened to the 45 but it's been happening to bubba it's been ha- like it, this is a systemic issue for 2311 as great as they have done building a race wing an organization, I would say their lack of wins falls more on pit road than anywhere else. So what we just talked about with RFK, that's what 2311 has to do to their pit department, right? Is, is they have to control it. They have to take it in. They have to change the culture, the mindset, the coaching, the whatever they think it is. Mistakes will always happen. And what happened to the 45, I'm sure will happen again in years down the road. But If I'm Billy Scott, if I'm Tyler Reddick, my concern is how much control do I have over it currently? It just, it's not good. Like, I don't know how else to say it. The 2311 pit crews are not good. Uh, Bubba Wallace, like we forget Bubba Wallace was having a great day at Richmond until the jack dropped loose and the car come up and down. Look, it's very difficult. I'm not here judging like I could go do the job. But I will say what I always say, and you love it. This isn't intramural football, boys. <laughs> this right here is professional sports. So if you have empathy for the kicker who missed the field goal, that's good for you. But if you're the manager, you might want to fire him. Right? Like, it, I'm sorry. You don't get paid as a professional athlete and then get judged as a high school athlete. That's not how the world works. It, it just isn't. If you don't have the stomach for it, don't do it. Because it is miserable. It is high pressure. So I think the answer for 2311 isn't a one-week answer. It isn't a one-month answer. If you want to talk about that specific pit stop, I would want to know, if I'm Billy Scott, how we didn't know we had 14 seconds to get these tires on, why we were in such a hurry. That would be my my issue. Because do I think the timing can get wrong? You're going to drop the jack. The tire changer kind of put his hand up, and and the jack man started to stop. Like They were so close to making the right decision. Once again, you know me, I like to be long-winded on a podcast. The long-winded answer is if I'm twenty-three, I'm going to have my own pit crew. I'm depending on other people no longer. That's the only way I think you know how to fix it. If you're going to have pit crew issues, at least have pit crew issues with your own mantra and your own mentality.
1: That makes sense. Some hard decisions, discussions probably going to be happening there after the post-mortem. Also, probably some tough decisions, some tough conversations for some drivers after this race, Stevie. I mean, we saw this. Phenomenon. Burton mentioned it. It was sort of the opposite of what we've seen this year with next gen where, you know, the Pocono move by Denny Hamlin, where it seemed like the outside car is usually in trouble. Uh, when a driver dives underneath somebody, it seemed like the opposite was happening at Michigan, whether it was Kyle Bush or William Byron or Alex Bowman or Christopher Bell. I don't know what it was about this track, this tire, this car, but why do you think guys were losing control when they got underneath somebody in the corner was that just a michigan thing was it a one-time thing
0: i think it's a little bit of everything i think michigan in general has two very symmetric corners it's the highest speed track we go to so the position you're going to put the car is going to be the most aggressive aero position you put the car all year long and for that reason like i tell everyone listen if you want to make it drive good i can make it drive good and you're going to be slow we heard that from a lot of drivers aj alman said multiple times in his interview we're stacked with downforce so it drives good but i just can't keep up So that tells me reading between the the tea leaves here that, you know, the cars that were, we didn't have any slow cars wreck. I mean, the 42 is in a really bad situation. He kind of lost it arrow wise, but Kyle Busch is as raw of talent as they come. And he just wrecked Chase Elliott, flat tire, separate deal. Christopher Bell just wrecked, just lost control of his car. And you're talking two guys that their car control, I, I think is, is, you know, we're talking top half of the field car control, probably better. So that just tells me that, you know, this quest for speed, the crew chiefs are getting better and better and better and better and better at dialing these things right on the edge. And now there's just no recovery. I think that what happened at Michigan, I don't know if the teams will change a whole lot, but I think the drivers will. Once again, they're not robots. You know, Kyle Busch wrecked. And I want to give Kyle Busch credit. He got three questions out of the media center. He answered all three. There wasn't one smart ass answer. There wasn't anything. He didn't love it. You could tell he didn't love it. But I applaud Kyle Bush for standing there and taking three questions. But he was mad because he said, it. I messed up. I wrecked, like I wrecked. Kyle Bush isn't gonna make the same mistake multiple times, right? He probably expected the car to do what it has done in the past. It did something very different, he wrecks. So now they're very smart. They're gonna sit down and say, why did the car act differently? They're gonna feed him with that information and then he's gonna be pre- prepared probably Kansas is the one that comes to mind that would have the same sort of kind of fire underneath the guy and the guy could chase you down or run the top. So it's going to be interesting to see how it how it kind of goes from there. I'm thankful that they all come out of the infield care center feeling better. I will say that. You know, a year ago, that is the blueprint hit that was a major issue in the garage area. Um, it's only midweek, so I knock on wood. I'm not trying to jinx anybody that they start to feel have uh, worse symptoms as the week goes. You know, Noah Gregson had that back when he had that big hit at St. Louis. He had this issue longer out so i just hope that as good as they felt on their interviews continues all week long uh, that's the goal for everybody because they were all very 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 big hits
1: and they were all the type of hits where they're spinning around and backing in the way kurt bush did at pocono last year of course you know when i saw elliot have that impact it was very good to see him later get cleared do the interview outside the care center seemed to be okay uh, another guy who backed in stevie obviously he must not have had the same damage that Elliot did, but Christopher Bell's incident, which happens right before the race got postponed, I'm thinking like, ah, oh, man, too bad this driver and team got to spend an extra night and come back. So the next day with this car that apparently I thought was destroyed, but wasn't nearly as damaged, Bell finishes 13th with a car that he sent into the wall. I Were you stunned? Like, John. is there any explanation for that?
0: no but I have gone back I've asked the TV folks to cut me the repairs and all the videos we have to try to understand what they're working on and I said it right on air you know they weren't too worried about the about the right rear quarter panel and everything you would have been worried about in the old car they could care less huh. you know they had those arms un- up underneath the diffuser making sure everything down it just proves how these cars work I, you know the spoiler they were they spent a lot of time around the deck lid and the spoiler and sealing it to the rear glass and doing a lot of things there they spent a lot of time underneath that car working on, um, they call it the diffuser flap, which is basically there for aerodynamics to not get a car upside down. You can't just tape it up. So they had to repair the pin. You know, there was a lot of fine details. I had wrote them off. I didn't even have Christopher Bell. I'll tell you how bad it was. I luckily had him in my fantasy lineup from dumbass luck because I had more starts of his than William Byron's. So I took William Byron out to save the one start I had left. That's the only reason. I wish I could do it because of points. Then I looked up on the ride home, and I'm like, well, don't I look smart? Because I got points from Christopher Bell.
1: Well, I had him in my lineup too, but I switched him out for Eric Jones, who ended up only scoring a couple more points. At one point, I thought I had made the wrong move. Let's wrap up by looking ahead a little bit. We got three races left to go in the regular season. We've got Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course. We've got Watkins Glen, got Daytona. As I mentioned at Michigan, not a good day for Hendrick Motorsports. Kyle Larson finishes fifth, but incidents for Chase Elliott, for Alex Bowman, for William Byron, Elliott's certainly in a must win. Bowman took a huge hit. And I know that for both of those guys, you feel like the specter of Bowman's point penalty and Chase Elliott's suspension now kind of rearing its ugly head that might keep both of these Hendrick drivers out of the playoffs.
0: So, uh, you know, I still will, will say, and I'll make the statement right now, I think Chase Elliott can win any single week. I don't care how fast he's been last week. I don't care. He drives one of the most powerful race teams. Uh, If we think we know why they're good one week and why they're bad the other week, we don't. That's my job to know, and I still don't know. Like, unless I hung out with Chad Canals and Al Gustafson all day long and Jeff Andrews, I have no idea what they're working on. So we have no idea when the next thing is coming out. So I am definitely not putting it past either one making the playoffs. But I'm willing to say that it's going to be a victory lane if that's where Chase Elliott wants to end up. And I think we're kind of the same place with Alex Bowman. So do I think they can win? Yes. Do I think they will win? It's going to be a tall task. To your point, it's easy for us to say, well, Chase broke his leg and Alex Boker's back. Fair. The 48 lost 60 points because of a greenhouse infraction. 60 points. I say that because you want to say hello to Jeff Burton, who's calling me? You know, 60 points because, and I'm, I'm going to bring it up right here so I don't misspeak because I have the playoffs right here in front of me. He's currently 44 behind. So Alex what will be 16 ahead. And you don't know how they would race different protecting points. Like it's just a different thing, right? Now Chase Elliott's 55 behind. I don't think a one race suspension cost him 55 points. He's averaging like 25-ish, 28 points in his races. But he would have been in the mid-20s behind. Does that change how he races? I don't know. But I think that, you know, luckily we haven't had to talk a lot about rules and fractions. And I'm not trying to bring them up again. But when people talk about the penalties not being big enough, well, I don't know. Ask Kendra Motorsports in three weeks. How big they thought a suspension for Chase Elliott? He who did he hook on the racetrack? He wrecked. I forget. Denny he wrecked Denny. And for Alex Bowman, it was a greenhouse infraction for him and the 24. Uh, I want to say it was post Richmond in the spring. Don't quote me on that, but I think that was the week that they took their cars. So those penalties have real implications. We haven't even talked about the five playoff points that Byron has lost. So when we get into the playoffs, if he doesn't make the final round by any less than five points, I'm going to be pounding that drum too because that five points was taken away.
1: That's something to watch in a few weeks. But for now, we'll look at Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course, obviously a pivotal one now for Chase Elliott, Alex Bowman, anybody outside the top 16. But interesting lineup here, Stevie. We got Shane Van Gisbergen returning SVG. Uh, We got Brody Kostecki also from Supercar Series. We got Kamui Kobayashi making his NASCAR cup series debut, the two time Rolex 24 winner. So
0: we got two thirds of the garage, 56 entry. That's right. We got Jensen button and Rockefeller now in the 42.
1: What do you make of all this? I mean, talk about the international, you know, lineup coming to Indianapolis. Fantastic.
0: What SVG did, at, Chicago's outstanding. Everybody keeps asking, how's he going to be at Indy? I have no idea. Um, I can't, Try to measure what the street course aspect was. What he did was super impressive. So I can't believe he's gonna all of a sudden just fade into nothing. I think he's gonna be fast once again. Um, I love it. Um, you know, I think that that put some eyeballs to it. I think Garage 56 could have some long-standing kind of global showcase. Kamui Kobayashi, for the fans that don't understand, I didn't know who he was. And I covered for the Rolex for the first time in a rain-filled night. And about three in the morning, I was sitting on the pit box, wanting to know who the hell it was in the Wayne Taylor car, I believe, clicking off a second. I'm not talking tenths of a second. And I'm talking in and out of traffic. He was gapping some of the best race car drivers in the world one second a lap for an entire stint. And I was like, okay, I don't know who that is. I looked him up, World Endurance Championship. I'm like, this guy is unbelievable. So later that day, I find my way to go find him. He's super cordial. I go up and I talk to him. He is the most fascinating character. You know, like, man, you ran, I think it was like a triple stint. Ran a triple stint at night. You feel okay? Feel good. You got to get back (laughs) in the car again this morning if they need me. And I'm like, I loved it. Because this guy was like, I am going to give you time because you're the broadcast partner and I appreciate it. But I can't wait for you to stop talking to me because I want to go back and focus on my car. I don't know how he's going to run because a lot goes into it. But he's going to have some pace. SVG is going to have some pace. His supercar I don't know if rivals is the right word but I have googled go to youtube and see a couple of their finishes they've had some unbelievable finishes between the two of them in supercars huh. so it, it's great I love I love the international flair I love the drivers coming in I think I, I think I just think, think it's spectacular It's
1: going to be cool to watch this weekend at the brickyard Really appreciate you making time squeezing me in on between you got an afternoon of meetings you got to go call the mayor
0: Hey we got a thing from Indy though we got to talk about He got buried at the Chicago street course but the restart zones in a whole different spot now oh yeah so it's going to be very interesting to see how that fixes this or changes this turn one debacle of five wide right it's going to be much earlier in the track they're going to come through i don't even know what corner numbers i'm not going to pretend i'm um, that point of the week but they're going to restart earlier so it's going to be interesting to see if that changes what i don't like to see which is the five wide at code and the five wide at indy look i like to see passing i think five wide is a little over the top so that would be an interesting little. It kind of got buried at Chicago because let's be honest, I had to learn a whole lot about Chicago. But now we're going to see it applied to a track where we have seen racing over the last couple of years, so we're going to be able to instantly compare the difference.
1: Yeah, those last two years with those five wide late restarts, not really fun to watch. I mean, it certainly creates a lot of jumbled up positions and drama, but
0: not racing for me. I'll just go ahead and say it. Fans can hate hate me. It's not that's not racing. Five wide bumper car and into turn one's not racing. Um, You know, when you jump out of line at Watkins Glen and overtake, that's a pass. Um, But when you just fire it all the way up the inside and know when you get to the curb, you're going to hit three guys in front of you. Yeah, I don't like that. And listen, I'm not, and the drivers have no choice because if you don't do it, someone's going to do it to you. So double header, IndyCar, I get to watch an Indy race in person, NASCAR, like can't wait.
1: It's a lot happening. NBC Sports, the place to be to check it out. And Steve Wittart, the man to listen to when we're talking NASCAR. Thanks for being here, man. Absolutely. Great times. Our thanks again to Steve Lachart for joining us on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Thanks to Motorsports manager Emily Conboy for setting up the episode. You can watch the video version of this episode on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube page, and you can also find more NASCAR America Motormouths content and highlights from across the racing spectrum. That's the video episode of the NASCAR and NBC podcast and tons more content on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube page. Go check it out. The NASCAR and NBC podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. And it's also now on Amazon Music as part of the NBC Sports collection on Amazon Music. You can find all your favorite NBC Sports shows on Amazon Music. Just head to Amazon.com nbcsports NBC Sports. That's Amazon.com slash NBC Sports. The NASCAR Cup and Xfinity Series and the NTT IndyCar Series all will be at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course this weekend. You can head to NBCSports.com NASCAR, NBCSports.com Motors for all the information and schedules on how and when to watch, as well as on-site coverage from me and Dustin Long. That's all at nbcsports.com slash NASCAR, nbcsports.com slash motors. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send it to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time?